Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Bob Moon and I were joking about a few moments ago. There are precious few hours here until the Christmas holiday have a great guest here to talk retail with us. That is Howard Davidovitz, chairman of Davidovitz uh, and Associates, an expert on retail. It's great to see you here uh, in the studio this morning. Thank you for the invitation. Help me understand here how much uh, holiday retail changes year in and, and year out. Uh, it, is, is the strategy different? I walked outside uh, Bloomberg headquarters yesterday. There's a gap. There's a Banana Republic. Both are having 50% off sales, something I used to remember happening after the holidays themselves, but it seems like that is starting earlier. Yeah, it's much more competitive now. But if you're, for example, if you're in a department store business, they're all getting killed. Uh So obviously they're going to be much more aggressive on promotions. That's how they react. If you're in a better segment, if you're in a cosmetics business, you're promoting a lot less. I mean, Ulta is the finest specialty store in the United States. It's the fastest growing. It's the most successful. Everything's great. So they don't have to promote. They have their normal promotions. Same with TJ Maxx, same with Russ. They're all making their numbers. If you don't make your numbers, Mm. you react, and sometimes you overreact. So that's what's going on. The weak are promoting the most. (laughs) That's the way it works. We hear that the department stories are dying, that they're on on life support. What's What's the expected longevity for the department store in the U.S.? Are we going to see them in five years or ten years' time? Yeah, we will see them, but a lot fewer, uh-huh. a lot fewer of them. For example, the largest department store in the United States, Sears, is on a death watch. And it has been. And it has been, and it just keeps shrinking, and it's, it's all going away. So that's the largest. So you start with that guy, and then you go to a lot of weak players, and there's loads of them. We don't have Bonton and a bunch of others who don't look too good. They're all, one way or another, bad. Uh, Dillard's, Macy's, Nord's. I mean, the numbers are all bad. And what they're all doing is getting into the discount business. Uh-huh. If you take Nordstrom, they've got 200 Nordstrom rack stores which are discount stores, they've only got 120 Nordstrom stores. So they've reallocated capital to the best part of the business. If you take Saks Fifth Avenue, they've got more off-fifth stores than they have Saks stores, reallocating capital to what's working. So that's a big change. All the focus, Howard, is on like discount stores and all that, and on the super, super fancy high stores. Right. Just below the super, super fancy stores, (laughs) what's going to happen there? What's going to happen is the discounters are going to get the business. That's really what's going to happen. In other words, below the super high fancy, there won't be a place for middle-level stores. It's very little market. So most people will shop in discount-oriented stores. By the way, that makes a lot of sense to me because a lot of the buying will be online. And the rest of it will be in discount stores that will have changing products and that interest people, you know, search around, get new stuff. So 
it'll be different. There'll be less stores in the middle. And, you know, stores like Penny's and C's, I mean, they're all in trouble anyway. So there's going to just, is, they're all going to go away. Is Bloomingdale's right next door to us folks here in New York City? And, and I, they really painted the building this year. It oh, yeah. great. Are they a fancy store in your world? Is Bloomingdale's... Like wicked upscale, or is it just sort of kind of like... Bloomingdale's for sure is not wicked upscale. In other words, it's not Bergdorf's or Barney's price points. Bloomingdale's has a younger customer. Okay. More price sensitive. More price sensitive. Can can they survive? Not the way they are now. In other words, there'll be fewer stores, there'll be smaller stores. But will there be some kind of Bloomingdale's? Yes, but in five or ten years, there'll be smaller... More urban and different than they are. Yeah, now. I, just David Girl, so you understand, I can't survive getting across the acclaimed Bloomingdale's makeup floor, <laughs> which is in Moscow and the Hudson. I mean, it's still there, right. and it's as funny as when Robin Williams was yeah. making history. Right. When you go into Bloomingdale's, you go into Bergdorf. What are these? What are these stores doing well? In other words, are they, are they maintaining any semblance of a uh, surprise? Can you delight in anything there? Can you find something unexpected and, and, and pick up something that you wouldn't have thought to get online or thought to get elsewhere? Well, I think they're working on that. Yeah. Uh, for example, uh, Macy's, who's Bloomingdale's parent, bought a cosmetics company. Uh-huh. And, 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 and they're trying to you know build that business, and that ought to be okay. They're going into the discount business and Macy's, so maybe they'll have part of the store in that. There's a lot of changes taking place, but basically they're stuck. Mm. Ralph Lauren, this department, that basically they're stuck doing what they always did, trying to do it better and reallocate space. But... I mean, they got a monster by the tail. It's not really viable the way it is now. Play this out for us. If if we see some of these big box stores go out of business, if they become vacant, if you look at shopping malls, right. they become vacant as well. What does that mean for the for commercial real estate in this country? What's going to happen to those places? Well, we have forty seven billion dollars debt due on real estate loans in the next eighteen months. Forty seven billion CMBS, and that's only the beginning. Hello, Mr. Banks. That's the next crisis. So if you're Macy's, you got some good things. You got some great real estate that you own, probably $20 billion worth. So the big store in Chicago that they have, the Marshall Field store, that'll be some kind of multiple deal with condos. And, say, and the store will get smaller. That makes sense. Mm. Uh, in Minneapolis, Macy's is marketing that store in some way. In the Macy's New York store, they're looking to monetize part of that over a million square feet. They don't need over a million square feet. So a lot of that real estate will be monetized mm. one way or another, and that'll help. Ten seconds, where do the malls go, and we'll come back with us. The malls are in the suburbs. Half of them are going to be gone within 15 years. They'll, half of them are gone. Because they're not going to be gone. No, they're all gone. They're just gone. <laughs> gone, and they're all tremendously in debt, and they're going to be handed back to the banks. That is going to be a big deal. That is giant numbers, and it's coming. Yeah, it's like a Yuletide greeting from Howard Davidovitz. We get the Christmas spirit, the holiday spirit as well. Where is after the holiday now? Everybody, is it still everybody gets cash cards yeah, and it does. How long does it extend into January? Well, gift cards are a big deal, but see, gift at the cards. end of the day, January factually 
is the worst month of the year. So, I mean, there's a lot of talk about all the business done in January. They do so much business, it's the worst month of the year. So you can't overreact to January. There is a lot of traffic. There are a lot of returns. There are super bargain hunters out. It's a chance to get 70% off. It's also an opportunity to buy Christmas cards for next year. At 70% off, Christmas decorations and everything else, and lots of people do that. Lots of people are interested in saving money, and January is a good time to save money. So there's all kinds of stuff. 10% of retail merchandise gets returned. 10%. It's a gigantic number. So there's all those crowds out returning merchandise, and they're in the store, so maybe you can sell them something. We've been we've been trying to piece together what uh, Donald Trump's policies mean for uh, the economy, many many sectors in the economy, and I wonder what it means for for retail. You have to have retailers worried about the prospect of new trade tariffs and and what that could mean for clothing in particular. Yeah, the new trade tariff stuff, you know, is tricky, but there's a lot in what Donald Trump is saying that relates to growth, and that's what we need. Look. This year we're in a 2% economy. Next year we're going to have a 2% economy. So that's not good for retailing. I mean, retailing is a huge part of the economy. The core of what Donald Trump is saying, I think, is good for retailing. Tax reform. Less regulation. Mm. You know, those community banks, you know, when you go to a small town and they've got two franchise stores, and a guy wants to open up a third. Uh, Ace Hardware, you know, the guy's got two eggs, you know, and the auto dealer and all those guys, they deal with the community bank. The president of the bank sits right, right on the floor. I don't know how much dealings you've had with those banks, but the president is right there on the floor. He knows the customers. They come in. I mean, they've been destroyed. By a bunch of lunatic professors who should be in a mental institute. And by the way, the guy who in charge of writing a lot of Obama's rules wrote a book. And he said, animals should have lawyers. Let me quote, animals, your pets should have a right to an attorney. Now, that ought to give you a little hint to how we ended up in this okay. absurd situation. Howard, with, with that discourse, do, do you suggest that the president elect, just go right in and make abrupt changes? Right. Or do you think the Republicans will lessen or soften his Forget tone? the softening. Look, he's going to have nine months to get something done. He's got to go for the maximum right off the bat. What's an example in retailing of a regulation that needs to be changed? Does well, it have to do with part-time, full-time? I mean, what would be a regulation that would benefit tax all reform. retail? Tax reform. Tax reform would be a tremendous benefit to retail uh, because people, anything where people have more money in their pockets helps retail. If there's tax reform, that'll help retail. If banks... Lend money easier. That'll help retail. Everything that Trump, most things that Trump wants to do, related, and most of it is related to growth. That'll all help retail. It'll generally be a help to retail. And a lot of the areas involve, you know, 
less regulations, calming down the unions and all this great $15 minimum wage. It totally, it'll destroy the whole restaurant business, Bernie Sanders, you know, all the crazies. So all the crazy stuff that's gone on will go off the table and we'll get down to what can really be done on a practical base. Hopefully he can do this. I think he's tough enough to get a lot of stuff. I think he knows how to threaten people. And I think he knows how to get some of these Republicans in line. Hopefully he'll get it done. Howard DeVitus, thank you so much. On retail. And retail America. How's the shopping going, Tom? I haven't started yet. <laughs> One more day to wait and get in the spirit and all that. I was listening last night to Nickelback and then I'm sure you were Burl Ives. <laughs> Mr. Burl Ives with Christmas. David Girl, why don't you bring in a guest that we truly could speak for six hours to sure. today on a wide set of topics. And can we thank David Miliband for uh, halting the British Airways strike? Ah, just <laughs> for you, Tom. He did it just for you. Single-handedly wielded all that, that right? power just for you. Uh, yes, David Miliband joins us now. He's the CEO of the International Rescue Committee, of course, former uh, foreign secretary. And we have been watching, of course, the uh, the political back and forth at the UN about Aleppo as, as things deteriorate there even further, as hard as that is uh, is to believe, and certainly the, the, the ballooning refugee crisis in, in Europe uh, as well. Let's look ahead to 2017 now, and let's focus on refugees in, in particular. What's the biggest challenge going to be here for Europe, first of all, as that inflow continues? Well, thanks. I thought we did have six hours, don't we? That's well, there we go. Set sure. up your willing. Seriously, the, the, uh, <laughs> we should. Look, refugees are a symptom of political failure, and the central two facts of the political, international political environment for 2017 are, first of all, fragmentation of the global international order. And secondly, relatedly, a turning inwards, not just in the advanced Western countries, but also elsewhere as well. And it's ironic, but the world has never been connected before, mm. but never have more people been saying all politics is local. And that neglect of the global commons, that neglect of the unsafe spaces around the world, that neglect of fragile and failing states, is what's leading to more people fleeing their homes and being driven from their homes by conflict than ever before, 25 million refugees. And I suppose that what really makes this a global problem, not just a local problem, is that the problems that start in Syria or Somalia or Nigeria don't stay in Syria or Somalia or Nigeria. They end up to the closest, safest, richest, approximate geographical point, and that often is Europe. And that's the central fact of the global refugee stroke migration crisis that Europe faces. But I would argue it's not going to be confined to Europe. How do you and how do politicians have a conversation about a global crisis at a time when it seems like, as we've seen here in the U.S., if we've seen in your United Kingdom as well, there is a, a limited appetite for globalization at this point? Well, I think there's not a limited appetite for common sense. Mm. And I think the way to address this is to say, look... Um, we have to address this problem at source as well as at symptom. So it does need more effective peacemaking and peacekeeping. It does need more effective humanitarian aid in the countries that have most refugees. I mean, you'd think 
from the American debate or the European debate where we're talking in America, 100,000 refugees or 50,000 refugees in, in the UK, massive debate about 10,000 people in Calais, you'd think it was Western countries that were besieged. The truth is 85% of the world's refugees are in poor and lower middle income countries, some of them very close allies of the US. Look, Jordan is the second closest ally of the United States in the Middle East. It's got 650,000 registered Syrian refugees, probably 650,000 unregistered as well. And they are facing the refugee crisis in the absolute heat of the uh, kitchen. And I think our, the argument in the West has got to be, first, we've got to address this problem at source. Second, the symptom, which is this people smuggling that's bringing people illegally into Europe, needs to be addressed. And the best way to address that is to say the most vulnerable cases will have a refugee resettlement route properly vetted. Thirdly, if we neglect this problem, which is yeah. what happened in 2013, 2014, it'll come crashing onto our shores anyway. After the last... 36 or 48 hours of politics and tweets. What does Europe want from the president-elect of the United States on migration and on the greater good and society and commonweal of Europe? Well, I think there's a very simple answer to that. Europeans want America to be their ally. They want an alliance founded on values that believes that democratic societies will always have more in common with each other than with autocratic societies, whatever the realpolitik. And they want to be working with the new Trump administration as a force for global stability and prosperity. And so when they're thinking about engagement with Russia, they want to do it with America. When they're thinking about engagement with China, they want to do it with America. That, if you're asking me what's the central aspiration of Europeans, it's for the new administration to uphold, first of all, an, an alliance that has brought peace and prosperity for a long time. Secondly, they want to be, uh, uh, see, they want the United States to uh, work with them in a way that recognizes shared interest. How, Syria is occupying such a large part of our minds when we talk about this this issue. But of course, I heard uh, Ambassador Samantha Power earlier this week talking about South Sudan and what's happening there. The refugee crisis is much larger, uh, and how ignorant are we, are most people, of, of the breadth of it? Well, it's a great point. We shouldn't forget Syria. I mean, remember, eight of my hospitals have been bombed in Syria in 2016. Right? These are not underground... Okay, give us an anecdote on that. That's a fabulous statement. Yeah, so, give us a, so in, east, a, a, in, in, in east of Damascus, we're running a hospital, and it's not an underground hospital. It's marked on the map, and it gets bombed. And... Patients get killed in that case. This is the modern face of warfare. Yeah. Total abuse of international humanitarian law and no accountability. I mean, if I'd been at President Putin's press conference today, which I think is still going on, still going on yeah. um, I would have, after three hours and 48 minutes, um, I would have liked to have asked him, who in your system was responsible for ordering the bombing raids with the Syrian air force of those hospitals? And I think that so Syria does get attention because it's the most appalling uh, evidence of a breakdown of international norms, not just wars without end, but wars without law. However, you're right to say we mustn't just chase the headlines. We've got to look outside the headlines. Part of my job running an international aid organization is to talk about the forgotten crises, which might be important. I mean, not many people know Nigeria. They know it's the largest country in Africa. They don't know it's got two and a half million internally displaced people in the northeast of the country because of Boko Haram. Mm. Uh, South Sudan, the world's newest nation, which you, you mentioned in your intro, that's a country where population of 10 million, four and a half million in humanitarian need, a civil war, and an inability to get... There's a vote today, I think, on an arms embargo 
onto South Sudan. Mm. These, my point is, these problems don't just stay in the countries that they're happening. In a connected world, they'll hit the rest of us. How hard is it for you to hire people to do these jobs in a place like you mentioned those hospitals? How difficult is it for you to I, I find aid workers? I should have made that clear because one of the things that's changing in the humanitarian sector is we hire local people. So the people who are working for us in hospitals in mm. Syria, we're not sending them from Hoboken. Right. We are um, employing local people who, and they always say to me when I say, "Well, how you know? God, you're brave. How how do you do?" That? They say, "I've got no choice. Right. I live here." And that is, especially in a middle-income country like Syria, where you can get doctors and health workers and civil engineers. We, we do water and sanitation. We do healthcare. We do education. And I think it's uh, the model that we're moving to is, yes, there are a small number of international staff who are expert in emergencies and other things, sure. but actually you're more and more trying to hire local people. Hmm. We're we, going to leave it there. We're going to leave it. Sorry. Okay. So much for our six hours. Six hours. <laughs> Don't be a stranger. <laughs> Please continued. come back. David Thanks Norman, for having me. Uh, with us. Maybe we'll even mention... Uh, the United Kingdom. There you go. Next time around. I'm now, you know, I live in New York now. I'm not, I'm not an American. I don't, I'm not a voter here. But, yeah, uh, the voice gives you... Thank you for solving the share. Seriously. Okay. I'm going to be using their services. It's nice that the Miliband stepped in and said, no, you can't strike. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. What a joy this is. Um, we're, we're, first of all, folks, on this week of the year, we don't do math. So I don't know why Rocky Fishman was booked. <laughs> he didn't get the Because he does get... brilliant, brilliant derivatives math work for Deutsche Bank. He, and he gets a ton of mail when he's on because we really get going. I want to start with what we're seeing, which is the emotion of the market, mm. which you know is this odd word stochastic, which I translate in lectures as pointy. There's lots of pointy, there's lots of abrupt things going on now. Are you working, you know, your work with Dominique Constant and Bingy Chowder and that, are you working within a continuum of stability or is it getting very pointy where your radar's up? If anything, we're seeing more stability going forward. Hmm. What we think that we're heading into this year is a more fundamental, less technical market. So the last couple of years, especially in the U.S. equity market, there were moments when it seemed like some sort of accumulation of positioning and you know, markets moving in a certain way, triggering forced buying and selling, was causing some of the most violent moves in the market. If you think about the last few months, the market's biggest moves are on catalysts like mm. Brexit and the elections that people were preparing for, talking about for months going into them. So we do think that we're heading into more of a, tech, a fundamental market rather than a technical market. That probably means market trends play out over weeks or months rather than happening all at once like we've had the last couple of years. So should we make less of a deal about the, the elections in France, the elections in the Netherlands? Are these less catalytic than the uh, the referendum in the U.K., say, or the, the U.S. presidential election? Are we more 
Is it just more inured to, to things like this? Well, they're important. And yeah. the catalysts coming out of Europe are all important in the aggregate. It's not like there's going to be a single moment that's going to define what the Eurozone looks like 12 or 24 months from now. Um, but we do think that we're going to have a more steady diet of mild volatility over the course of the year rather than a single severe response. Ramp in your derivatives work with Peter Hooper's 3% plus GDP. Mm. We, we go back and forth. One interview is 2% GDP. One is a more buoyant idea. The vector I get from Deutsche Bank is this is real and we're going to grind higher. Fold that into your equity view and the tool of derivatives. Well, the equity derivatives market seems to be agreeing with a positive outlook on growth. If anything, we're seeing more activity in call options, which are positioning for upside in the market relative to put options. Um, the ratio of the open interest of calls and puts is very heavy towards the call side right now. Um, S&P SKU, which is the derivatives market's way of expressing how valuable protection is versus how valuable leverage is, has come right. down very significantly in the last few weeks. Should we have Ken David Gers skew up uh, uh, queue up, rather. Skew Robert Goulet's Robert Goulet's Christmas songs. I'm dreaming of a cross moment. Wow, that would be good if he can find it. Rocky's such a limited amount of time. He, he got kurtosis in his stocking. <laughs> Continue, David. That was skew, folks. That's the think the third cross moment. Rocky, I'll admit that some of this is all Greek to me, but you talk about the timeliness of overwriting uh, in your note. What what does that mean? Good question. And why should we Action. focus on well that? Well done, David. Yeah, well, overwriting is a strategy that option investors do to position for only limited upside in the market. So it says that you are willing to take full downside risk on a stock, but lock in a certain amount of upside. And in an environment where there still is not that much equity upside to a lot of investors' right. perceptions, you want to be able to get what you can. Options markets can let you make money when options are doing nothing by selling call options on existing stock this is positions. David, that's a brilliant, you get an A-plus oh, question you, on derivatives <laughs> math. Okay, so I've got an option, Rocky. I'm going to go out, I'm going to sell the option, bring in the income, bring in the money in from writing the option. What is the part of the Greek dynamics now making that very productive and cheap to do, or is it a high-cost strategy right now? Well, selling options is a negative-cost strategy. And You're the, making money. The Greek that you want to know about is called Theta. I know we're getting a little help. No, no Theta. For no, a, this is right, uh, right. I'm happy to learn. I knew he was going Good. there. This yeah. is the time function you're dealing with. Right. So options will, if nothing happens, options lose value over time. So if you can sell the right options and the markets don't move enough to justify the value of that option, then you can be making money in a nothing-happens scenario. So that's a strategy that's been very timely the last couple of years. Um, it's going to continue to be timely, especially as we get to a fully priced in upside scenario when you have just limited additional upside to go on the S&P. Mm. For those of you of Global Wall Street, it's been a joy. Rocky Fishman with us with Deutsche Bank. We've been talking theta, not gamma, not vega. We've been talking theta. We've been talking skew, not kurtosis, not variance. David Gurra threw a Bloomberg Food Court muffin at me, hit me on the head. <laughs> so I reach Tom, for I don't get it. Let's talk yeah. VIX. David, Let's pick talk it up Vicks. on the VIX. I'm looking at the VIX right now, 11.58. It was lower than that yesterday. I think around 10, I think we hit lows that we hadn't seen in a few months uh, yesterday here. What do you see when you look at the VIX today, and, and what's your forecast going forward? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the low VIX level that we've seen this week is partially a byproduct of the time of year that we're in. 
the VIX is a measure of very, very short dated volatility. What is the next 30 days going to look like? Well, we know that the next 30 days has three holidays in it. You have Christmas, New Year's, Martin Luther King yep. Day. Those are all days that the market is closed. The VIX doesn't really adjust for that. So just from that perspective, there's less opportunity for the markets to move around. If you look at the ratio of the VIX to longer dated measures of volatility, there is a high premium on longer dated volatility, what we call a steep term structure. Um, the other thing I would say about the VIX being so low is that the VIX is a measure of how volatile the S&P is going to be. Well, the S&P lately has been a lot less volatile than the stuff inside of it because you've had sectors moving in different directions. You've had a lot of sector differentiation in this post-election period because the fundamental um, stories that are coming out of the election result affect different sectors differently. So financials have been doing great while utilities have been doing poorly. And you've had a lot of differentiation inside of the S&P when the S&P is not moving as an index because the stuff inside of it is moving a lot, but in different directions, that's going to bring down the VIX as well. So we expect the VIX to be higher as we start getting into next year. Um, but at this particular time of year, um, it is n not unusual to have one of the lower volatility periods of the year. I'll put a question to you that I put to George Kincaus of, uh, of Nomura here a few moments ago. That's rates volatility. What have we seen uh, in rates volatility uh, and, and, and what does that tell you right now? Well, it's definitely picked up. Um, it's become relatively high relative to equity volatility, but not an, an, at an extreme. Um, rates vol has slowed down um, after its big jump post-elections, um, and we're keeping an eye on it for sure. Hmm. Um, one of the things that matters to very multi-asset portfolio managers is not just what's rates volatility doing, but are rates correlated with the equity market? In other words, are bond prices and stock prices going in the same direction as each other? Um, that correlation has been changing directions, but during the period in November when rates volatility was very high, you were seeing bond prices and stock prices going in opposite directions. Yeah. allows investors to tolerate more of that volatility. Help us with a modern concept. Some of our listeners will know, but many others won't, which is buying volatility. And you buy the volatility of the volatility. Translate that soup I just mentioned. <laughs> What does that mean? Well, I will tell you, it, it all sounds like complicated stuff and, and you know, Greek letters and whatnot. But the reality is that there are products that are listed in ETF and ETN format that allow investors to buy volatility and therefore establish a position in volatility of volatility. Um, people need to certainly be aware of what those products are made out of. Um, but there are products that people use to actually transact in right. volatility. VIX options, VIX futures, the VXX ETN, other ETNs based on volatility. Is it features. had its day? Well, it's always when you talk about a market on anything, whether it's volatility or oil, there's always two directions. Volatility can go up, volatility can go down. So there are periods when it's better to yeah, own but, volatility. There's periods when it's okay, better to short volatility. I want volatility. to rip up the script. Please, this is yeah. important because the media didn't get this right. The other day, the media was talking with a frenzy about the option market on $100 oil derivatives. That stuff's sort of always out there. You put little bits of money. This is all Taleb 101. You put little bits of money on huge payoff bets, which you can do in oil. If oil's 50 and you believe it's going to go to 100, you don't put all your money on it because you may be wrong. You put in little bits of money along the way on that one-off rare bet, the, the idea of rare things happening. In the normal world of Fed guessing, are we going to be doing that, betting on big moves, or are we going to be grinding out derivative strategies 
as we enjoy the Trump reflation? So I think that I would prefer to be doing longer term option strategies that don't depend on having a very sudden move happening right now. So I think that with fundamentals mattering, fundamentals play out over longer periods of time, understanding which of the policy proposals that have come out of the Trump administration are going to get legislated and which ones are going to run into roadblocks is not going to just happen in one day, causing a big move in the market. It's something that's going to be trending towards its final destination over a period of months. I I would state, folks, and David, the only way to understand what Rocky just said is to enjoy losing money. Full disclosure, (laughs) I've done it. But you got to go out and have a conviction about a big bet and make the big bet, whether, whether the big move, I should say, and enjoy losing money before you really get what he just said. David? Rocky, when you say fundamental trends, break that down for us. What are you looking at uh, in particular? Well, I think that it's about the um, outcomes of some of the policy proposals that the new administration has brought to the table. Um, it's also about some of what we talked about with Europe. A mm. lot of the elections in Europe are going to have significant implications over the next year and years. These are things that are going to be understandable from a perspective of economics and markets. And it's not going to be that our biggest moments of volatility come when we've had too low volatility and all of a sudden people are getting long the market because it's not volatile. I think that it's going to be more about the upside coming from the actual changes to companies' prospects for making money rather than just people crowding in and out of the market. Is it an exciting time to be in the space? It's always an exciting time to be in the space. (laughs) I'm looking at this book, Tom. I mean, it's should I get it? I'm gonna have to get out my TI-86. Well, I'll do. I'll say to you, Dave. Yeah, talk about. (laughs) You know, some of us are before a TI-86. How about you got to get out your Kufel and Esser 1947 slide rule? Um, The answer is Sheldon Natenberg is a wonderful Bible on the world of Rocky Fishman. Math warning. It's got some math, math warning, in okay. it. It's not was, the worst I've seen. At. But if anybody is on global Wall Street, including the young Turks who want to talk theta and gamma and actually almost know the dynamics within the core derivatives equations, uh, there's a lot of ways of going. Paul Wilmot is brilliant. And, you know, Rocky, you've got your heroes as well. But Sheldon Natenberg's option volatility is Truly one of the original classic, uh, what I call foundation I'm just works. reading the reviews here on Amazon, and someone's just saying, like, you know, the first time I read this book, I didn't understand yeah. it, and therefore I didn't like it, but he or she read it again, as I imagine you yeah. have, Tom. I would recommend, David, you have a kale beverage yeah, of course. in your hand. Yes, I'll, I'll take it to my local Park Slope juice shop. <laughs> Rocky Fishman, where's the market 12 months from now? You got any derivative strategy for that? Are you believing in up, up, up on the equity markets? I mean, my view is more about volatility. I think that we, when we have this conversation a year yeah, from now, we're going to find that the market has it's, been more volatile okay. next year than it was Don't last year. Don't give me your cross moments. Is the market going up in the next 12 months? That's a really hard question to answer. And if I knew the answer, then... That's uh, it. Rich. There you go. Rich, he's so done. Next time, Binky Chata, Rocky Fishman. Thank you so much with, with uh, Deutsche Bank. out of Wesley and out of Stanford with a storied career on Wall Street and service at the International Monetary Fund. Now at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, he is a Peterson scholar. John Lipsky joins us here for the next half hour. I have to begin with exceptionally delicate 
uh, discussion. Uh, no one more than you has worked with Christine Lagarde over the last number of years. This thing of negligence, I read everything I could, John Lipsky, about the oddity of the French courts. We begin with a statement that it's unique to France. There's no English, no London, no Washington, no New York, no Cedar, uh, Cedar uh, Rapids, Iowa equivalent. <laughs> negligence. And they went through the ballet. Can you give us an explanation why Segaline Royale, Christine Lagarde, and other worthies have had to go through this torture? Uh, it's it's France, and it's rather it's rather unique. Uh, as you imply, the charge not only is the the form of the court, but the charge leveled against her would not be a, defined as a crime uh, anywhere else that I understand, uh, and that's why the IMF board in the when when they not first named Christine Lagarde mm-hmm. as managing director, this charge was pending. So they always implicitly they understood this was a risk, and so it's not surprising what, with her conviction, but with this oddity of conviction with no penalties, no fine, no jail time, no nothing, just a, a blotch, right. if you will. The board has said we're okay with this. We'll go forward with her I, as managing I, I director. I had a worthy ask me about this, and I said, "Well, I think it's a court of should. You should have done this. You exactly. should have done that. You have lived should with your public service for years." And the word associated with Dr. Lipsky is macroprudential. What is the state of our macroprudential risks right now, given populism, given the Trump presidency, just given the news flow we've seen the last six weeks? Well, indeed. The, I would say when you talk about macroprudential, we now face some potential risks that are very difficult to deal with in policy terms. And that's, for example, one in Europe. The very structure of the European edifice, if you will, has been changed dramatically with Brexit. And now we have to see the response of the Eurozone. How are they going to move forward with institutionalization without the, the UK and with the challenge, among other things, of restoring growth that means cleaning the banking system? And we've seen the, the difficulty so far in that. That's, that's certainly a macro prudential issue that's very difficult to deal with. Uh, and it's easy to, to see that the weakness and troubles of the banking system are one of the reasons why growth in Europe has been so slow and business investment so neg- negligible. Turning to China, China's potential success in economic reform or not is a big macroprudential issue that uh, is an open question and very hard to, mm-hmm. hard to oh, deal a lot with. Of, a lot of open questions. Right a now. lot of open questions okay. right now. Are we any closer to getting answers to those questions about China? We saw what happened to the currency in, in January and February of this year. A lot of people saying we can expect a reprisal of that here uh, in the new year. It's possible. Uh, are we getting a, a, a more transparent Chinese government in any sense when it comes to issues of currency, Sam? On, on currency, I think the answer is... Yes, kind of, sort of. Uh-huh. And, and part of the issue is, of course, if they are running an expansionary domestic policy and with the implication that they are at the same time going to, to try to limit downside risk to the currency, they're going to end up doing what they've done, which is uh, uh, resorting to some tightening of, current, of capital controls. Uh, so I would say that's a move away from transparency. But if that's, is, if that's just a little uh, bounce, shall we say, uh, or a step backwards in a move towards a more open and transparent financial system, including a more open capital markets, which what is the 
the explicit goal of the long-term goal of the Chinese authorities, then this is uh, not meaningful. With your experience at the IMF, help us understand the, the importance of China joining that special drawing rights basket at the IMF, joining the STR. Anything more than just a, a symbolic move, a symbolic gesture there? What does it mean? What does it say about the currency? Well, it's it's certainly sim- mainly symbolic, yeah. but symbolic potentially with the symbolism could be very meaningful. If you look at the 13th five-year plan of the uh, Chinese government, what it says is they are moving towards a floating exchange rate in an open capital market in a market-driven, efficient, modern, and domestic financial system. Mm-hmm. If, if this uh, inclusion in the SDR basket which reflects both their growing role in international, their, their growing size sure. relative to the rest of the economy, their increasing role in terms of international trade, the increasing role of their currency, the RMB, in settling trade and eventually moving toward capital, then this provides uh, ad, uh, both a, a sign and an encouragement mm-hmm. for them to continue along the path they've laid out. John Lipsky with us, formerly with the International Monetary Fund, Salomon Brothers, a few years ago yes. as well now at Johns Hopkins. Um, if, if I look at the idea that I'm sitting with John Lipsky the day of the largest set of bank nationalizations in Italy, since Mussolini. I mean, that's what I opened the TV show with today. I can't yeah. believe I said that. That's true, folks. <laughs> well, I checked, yes, I checked with Michael Moore. What does this say about the ability to clear markets? And do you just demand that Europe finally get its act together and create a more Anglo-Saxon model of clearing mistakes? We all make mistakes. Gurr has yet to make one on Bloomberg <laughs> surveillance. But we all make mistakes. Just they can't move on well, until uh, today. Uh, first of all, I, I, let's step back. The weakness of the banking system, the clogged balance sheets still littered with, with bad assets, some places more than others, the uh, heavy reliance on wholesale funding, uh, all of these have been flagged as a problem for some time. And the problem at the time of the, of the Great Recession was the institutions did not exist The European institutions did not exist to deal adequately with this, and they've been sort of building up uh, the institutions as we went along. Now, that was always the idea in Europe, but no one ever imagined that the elemental deep challenge would be the mother of all financial crises emanating from the United States, but that's what it was. So have they done anything to make you more optimistic going forward? The answer is absolutely the European Banking Authority, uh, the the uh, resolution mechanism. But here's something that's important that I'm a little puzzled by. They created the European Stability Mechanism. And that that institution can borrow, and it, it is allowed in, under, under its bylaws, if you will, it is allowed to directly recapitalize banks in the Eurozone. Now, why I've been a little puzzled as to why there have been this big fight between the European Commission mm-hmm. and the Italian authorities over whether or no. not they can use no. state money. Why haven't they been using the institution mm-hmm. that was created, that, among other things, right. to deal with this? Something to talk to Klaus Regling about. Indeed. I'm sure would have an opinion on it. <laughs> John Lipsky <laughs> with us. And i got to do some house cleaning here. Uh, the, the president-elect uh, reportedly... Uh, moved Mr. Bolton aside because he was mustached. Have you visited the Trump Tower? Are you transitioning? Are you being considered transition? You with the most wonderful mustache in all of economics? 
I've had it since I was 19. It's wow. not about to go. It's not about to go, <laughs> even for the president-elect. Have you been, seriously, uh, Mr. Tillerson could use no. your services. Have you well, been contacted? I'm sure there, there are lots and lots of people who are going to be uh, ready, willing, and able to uh, to serve in this administration. Help help us here with the, the, the what we've seen, the, the populism that we've seen, the impulse here to look inward, uh, among many people, it seems, uh, uh, in this country and elsewhere, all the while, there is talk of globalization. There's the need to have a global focus. Uh, Madame Lagarde was here a couple of weeks ago talking about the threat of deglobalization. How real is that threat as you see it? And how do we uh, have a better conversation about globalization, about living in a more globalized uh, world and, and, and making it a place where more people get more advantages? Indeed. Uh, globalization is a fact. Uh, deglobalization is a, a puzzling idea. Uh, exactly what what does that mean? Do we? Do, I don't. Can't, I find it hard to believe that anybody thinks that shutting off their borders suddenly would uh, be a positive development for the outlook for their economy. Uh, in fact, what we've seen, of course, is under the uh, the post-war order, the institutions on the economic side, which were designed exactly to make sure that to facilitate the flow of goods, services, and the financing for those goods and services has brought about the fastest 60 years of growth in the history of the world. And it's inconceivable that we would go back to the kind of, uh, of policies that brought on ruin in the 20s. I don't think that's a real risk. But we absolutely need to work out the institutions that will work well in a context in which the world, uh, the economy of the emerging economies is much more important than it was before. This is, I know, it's a cliche, but the G20 was created, in, the G20 at the leaders level was mm -hmm. created in the wake of the, of the crisis, is the principal institutional response to the global financial crisis. And I think it's been a disappointment so far as a venue for dealing with real issues. And uh, I would, one thing I learned in Washington, if the U.S., isn't engaged, nothing much happens. If only the U.S. is engaged, nothing uh -huh. much happens. And I, I hope that there won't be a deviation, uh, an idea that somehow just dealing with bilateral issues or even regional issues is obviates the need to show leadership at the global institutions that have been so critical for maintaining an environment that has been so beneficial would be uh, inconceivable. Let me ask you about uh, Chinese response during conversations about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, something that the administration said was if this deal isn't ratified, if Congress doesn't approve it, China is going to step in and broker uh, a large trade deal of its own, and they're going to exert more power in that uh, space. Uh, the same thing we hear with the, with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Uh, they have now built up 50-plus partners. Uh, right. They're doing a lot of good work as well. How real is that threat? In other words, we, we heard it from the administration, from the Obama administration. Is it a real threat here, ceding some sort of power, geopolitical power, uh, to the Chinese? Well, uh, within, within limits. I and mean, sure. we're not going to see a, a revolution in international relations. Uh, in economic, the void is not that reason. big, yeah. Mm -hmm. Ex exactly. On the other hand, on yeah. the other hand, uh, Look at the, uh, there are two big problems facing us right now. Uh, one is the, the G20 authorities say we need infrastructure investment and we're mm -hmm. going to create an infrastructure hub and we're going to work on this. The biggest infra international infrastructure project going is the Chinese One Belt, One Road. Yeah. Where's the, where does that fit into global governance? I don't, I don't see it. Mm -hmm. And secondly, 
climate change finance, sure. right? It's been dealt with right. so far at the at the UN level, where you have, uh, for better for worse, very lofty goals that seem divorced from the financial realities right. underneath. John Lipsky, you would have been proud of me yesterday. You would have you would have taken out your handkerchief and dabbed your tears away. <laughs> for my young staff, I trotted out Jacob Viner, nineteen forty eight. Power in plenty. Wow. I asked Madame Lagarde about this the other day with John Micklesweight. Let me ask you. It's becoming a zero-sum world. We are heading towards neo-mercantilism and a shattering of everything from the Atlantic Charter. Who's going to be the adult in the room, as Christine Lagarde has talked about, to right this ship and migrate us away from zero-sum? There has been a rebalancing of the global economy, but I come back to what I just said a few minutes mm. ago. If the U.S. isn't engaged in a leadership role, nothing much happens internationally. If only the U.S. is engaged, nothing much happens. If Mr. Trump chooses to do a Reagan or a pseudo-Reagan redux, are you impressed with the generals and Mr. Tillerson to do that, to engage? Well, I'd take, a, I'd take another, another, another glance at this in the following way. U.S. growth since the Great Recession has been 2.1% on average, which is a lot lower than our long-term average. Mm -hmm. We've had some policy issues congealed with no forward motion, even though everybody recognizes we need forward motion. I think the market is telling us it's hopeful that Mm -hmm. that there's going to be an unfreezing in policies in areas like corporate taxes, in regulation, in uh, immigration are going to move are going to move hopefully in a positive direction. If that results in an acceleration in U.S. growth, I think that right. will be a great contribution uh, to, L- to this process. Thank you so much, Dr. Lipsky. Thanks. We've got a date in Washington February. would be honored if you would attend oh. uh, as well. My, pe- my people to. will talk to your people. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.